as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrach, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Thank you, David. It is good to be with you. My name is Daniel. If you're new with us, welcome. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my joy to get to open the word and preach it to you today. Um, I remember as a kid uh, just wanting to be great like the performers that I saw, like the athletes who would come to the plate. It was the home run hitters, you know, and the crowd would go wild, or the guitarist that just wowed people with his licks. I wanted to be that guy that sung the high note and everyone was like, whoa, like how did he do that? I wanted to be that guy. I was so excited. I was mesmerized by man's greatness by what people thought was great in the world. And, you know, I, I'm not exactly trying to become a baseball star now or a rock star. I, I, though some days I think it would still be a cool life. Uh, but my, my idea has changed of greatness. Now it's, it's the, the writers. You know, it's, it's the, the best speakers. It's the, it's the handsome, the beautiful. It's the, you know, I, I, I'm amazed still, but my ideas have change of what I think is great. Let me ask you today, what, what is it that makes someone great in your mind? What, it is, what is it that makes someone great in your mind? There have been many that we could, we could point to in, in the course of history, some very different than our, our 21st century ideals. We're not, we're, we're not talking about rock stars or, or pop stars, but, but teachers, prophets, you know, uh, reformers. There, we could point to many, some who have done good and some who have done evil. And uh, yet, do you know who of all men on earth Jesus said was the greatest? It was John the Baptist, his cousin. It was, it was, it was his cousin, John the Baptist. I've always wondered what made him so great. Why did Jesus say amongst those born of woman, John is the greatest. Was it how hardcore this guy was? I mean, he, he lived in the wilderness, he wore sackcloth, and he, he ate locusts and honey. He, he never married, he never drank alcohol. His whole life was devoted to God. What was it about him that was so great? I mean, the guy never wrote a book. He, he wouldn't, he wouldn't uh, hardly travel outside of Israel. I don't know if, if he did. And yet, Jesus 
said he was great. His ministry was only perhaps six months long, and he was only a few months, six months maybe younger or older than Jesus, and so he, he lived a relatively short life. Could it be that John's greatness was in the fact that his entire life was focused on pointing to Jesus the Messiah? His entire being focused on bringing glory to that man. We saw in last week's text from Ross that John the Baptist was gaining a huge following. Crowds were coming to him from all over the place, out in the wilderness, by the Jordan. They were being baptized by him. He was preaching this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the rich, the poor, religious leaders, soldiers, all were coming to him and were being baptized. But in the moment of his spotlight, he did not take the glory, but he turned it to the one who is coming after him. This is what I believe is what made John the Baptist so great. This, I believe, is what God sees as true greatness. And let me ask you, is this your measure for greatness today? Tonight, I want to show you from our text that Jesus is the greatest of all. I I also want to show you what I'll call the true measure for greatness. The true measure of greatness. And then I want to show you that Jesus was baptized so that even sinners could be great. My main point is, since there is no one greater than Jesus, our greatness must must be measured by him. Let's pray and get right into the text. Father, show us your glory through this book that you've given us. You've taught us who you are, and we want to be shaped and formed by it right now. So would you speak through me? Would you speak, God, by your Holy Spirit so that we could be changed and so we could be great in your sight, so we could be pleasing to you as a people? We love you, Lord Jesus. Help us to learn from John the Baptist. Help us to learn today from your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Jesus is the greatest of all. Let's look together at verse 15. It should be up there on the screen, and and I would encourage you to follow along with me in your Bibles if you don't like the screens, Uh, but please follow along. So verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Now, quickly, if if you're new with us, we're going through this Gospel of Luke, and, and we're spending a good deal of time looking at the life of Jesus. He wrote to who we believe was Theophilus, a, a new believer most likely, and what he says, his purpose in writing is that we might be certain about the things we've been taught about this man, Jesus. So here in chapter three, Luke records that John the Baptist came out of the wilderness preaching the word of God that, that came to him while he was there, and it says in verse seven that that. So many people were coming to him. He, he's the headliner of the show, guys. He's, he's, like the, he's like the celebrity pastor, and everybody is coming close to him. But listen to how, how he responds to the crowds who are saying, maybe he's the Messiah. 
Maybe this is the one. Listen in verse 16. Read along. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Not for one second does John the Baptist want you to look at him. He did not want the crowds to pay attention to him, but he turned the attention to the one who is mightier, he says. Listen to how he talks about Jesus. He says, I'm not even worthy to unstrap his sandals. I'm not even unworthy to strap. I'm not even worthy to strap his sandals. In this time, this was only a task that non-Jewish servants would perform. The streets of, of that era, area and in that time were muddy, dirty. You'd find animal urine and feces all over. So you didn't want to touch somebody's feet. So the, so the servants would be the ones who would, who would unstrap sandals and then oftentimes wash feet before someone would come in. But, G, but John here says, I'm not even worthy to do that. This man is so great, I'm not even worthy to do that. John goes on, he says, I need you to know this too. I baptize just with water. But the one coming after me, he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What he's saying is, this, this water baptism that we're performing right now, it's external. We're working on the outside. We're, we're performing something that's showing what, what's happened on the inside, but I can't touch the inside. But this one coming after me, he can. He's the one who has power to give the Spirit. He's the one who has the power to cleanse your heart, to make you new. He's the one who has the Spirit, not me. But not only will the, whole, will the Messiah, this one coming after John, wield the Holy Spirit in fire, he's also described as being one who will be able to judge men. Look at verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John paints a, a scary picture he paints this picture of a thresher at harvest removing the wheat and separating the chaff from the wheat and putting the wheat into his barn and burning the chaff, what he says, with unquenchable fire. I don't think unquenchable is just some throwaway word. I think what he's talking about, he's talking about eternal judgment. He's talking about this man, this one coming after me, he has authority as to whether you end up in heaven or hell. His job is to judge this decision, this, this eternal, uh, your eternal existence. Whether you'll be with him or whether you'll experience judgment under God's wrath. These descriptions should have asked, caused everyone to ask, and including us, who then is this man? Who then is this one who's coming that has this sort of authority? This was not just any man. The roles that he's describing are the roles that only God performs. Psalm 50 puts it this way. The heavens declare 
his righteousness, speaking of God's righteousness, for God himself is judge. I put up the wrong one there. I'm sorry. That's, <laughs> that's right before there. He says, gather to me, my faithful ones. God himself is judge. Likewise, Joel 2 is, it prophesies that it is Yahweh who would pour out his spirit on all flesh. It is God who gives the spirit. These are the very roles of God that are being described about this man. And yet it's, it's this person that's coming after John the Baptist. This is what makes this man so great. He has the same power and authority as God. Luke is putting the pieces together for us. He wants us to see here that John the Baptist, he understands that he's paving the way for God. Isaiah 40, we read it last week. John the Baptist understood that he was this voice, the one crying in the wilderness, make ready a highway for the Lord. Make ready a path for the Lord. And when you look in your Bibles at Isaiah 40, you'll see that that's, that Lord is in all caps. It's, it's, it's signifying that that's the covenant name for God, Yahweh. This is God who John is making a way for. And he is aware of it to some degree that this man is so great that he can't even unstrap his sandals. He was far superior than John. He was indeed the greatest of all. And John did everything in his power to make sure you didn't look at him, but look to the one that was coming. Luke's account kind of leads, leaves his listeners and his, well, his readers hanging, just like John's word would have. As John the Baptist is preaching about this one, he's only using pronouns. He's not mentioning by name the Messiah. So everyone would have been growing, I think, in expectation for these six months. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The one coming after me is the judge. Flee from the wrath of God. But then in beginning in verse 21, Luke's, Luke tells the story of the revelation of our Messiah. Let's read it together. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This should make us all stop and marvel, and I know I've read this, this story of the baptism so many times. So the first time I read this, this week when I was preparing, I just thought, oh yeah, it's Jesus' baptism. But guys, this is a crazy moment, and Luke is trying to show us how crazy this moment is. John had been baptizing man after man after man. He's been, he's been baptizing people, and nothing extraordinary is happening. Only expectation is building. Who is the Messiah? Is he the one? Where is he? He's saying somebody is coming. But then this day, this man shows up named Jesus, and what happens? He says, John, I want you to baptize me. Matthew's gospel says he was like, no, Lord, I should be baptizing you. He said, it must be fulfilled. 
He was baptized, and it says when he came up out of the water and was praying, right then the heavens opened, the spirit descends on him like a dove coming to take its, its spot on a, in an object. In bodily form, the Holy Spirit comes down, and God speaks from the heavens and says, this is the one. This is my son, and I'm pleased with him. Luke is trying to show us this is the moment that everybody should say, oh. And yet at the same time, I think there's a level in which, like, that guy, it's just a man. John the Baptist, though he knew his cousin and had doubtless heard the prophecies about him, seems that in this moment it became clear to him that this this is the one this is the one i there's there's a moment in in when john's in prison and he's puzzled by it and yet the lord had told him the one on whom you see the spirit descend upon this is the messiah not just john but anybody who had known the scriptures would have been marveling at this moment because Isaiah had prophesied that the Messiah would have the Spirit come upon him in a special way. Let's read from Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, it should be up there, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my Spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then this is Isaiah 11, another prophecy There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that is, from David's line, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit was resting on Jesus in the very way that the Scriptures had prophesied would rest on the Messiah. Like the tongues of fire would come and rest upon the disciples and like this dove it came and remained on Jesus in bodily form what's happening here what is what is the significance of this moment you see the father was he was preparing Jesus he was anointing him with his spirit for the task of head this is not a divine begetting this is not an adoptionism, like, like God is, is like saying, this one, he's just some man now becoming God or now becoming a Messiah. No, Jesus was a king. He was prophesied the king from the very beginning, from his birth. He was a king, and yet this is the moment that he is being prepared, equipped. Go, you're ready. Now's the time. Take up your, your sword, basically. Go forth. This was for the sake of those listening, that they would see that this was the Messiah. Jesus was being equipped and he was showing others who he was. And accompanying this, this spirit empowering right here, we, we have these, these words from the Father in heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What's, what's happening here? In this moment, God the Father was identifying Jesus as his uniquely loved son. If you look at John chapter 1 verse 14, 
you'll see he is the only son, quote, only son from the Father. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God's affirmation that this is God's beloved Son. In addition to being the divine Son of God, he was a Son pleasing to the Father as a man. He was pleasing to the Father because up to this point, he had lived a perfect life, a spotless life. He was the second Adam, you see, just he was, he was like the, the pure Israel. Just as Adam was intended to live before God's face in holiness and failed, Jesus would come and pass the test. He would finish the work. So God was pleased with him. This spotless life is what made his sacrificial death on the cross a pleasing sacrifice to the Father on behalf of the people. I want you also to notice that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all present at this moment at the baptism. Isn't that amazing? The Father is affirming the Son. The Son, Jesus, is perfectly submitting to the Father in the purpose to, to save mankind. And the Holy Spirit is there ready to empower the Son of God for His mission. It's like a team poised for the mission to save you God showed up together to show you, hey, we're about to do something great. Through this man, we're going to save you. That's what made Jesus so great. That's why John the Baptist said, not me, him. Not only was he the son of God in flesh, he was also the one who had lived spotlessly on our behalf. This is why John says, I must become less, he must become more. This is why John, when all of his disciples were going after Jesus and his ministry was fading, he said, it is the joy of the bridegroom's friend to see the bridegroom say his vows. It is the joy of of the bridegroom's friend to watch the success of the bridegroom. God had come to take his bride. And John was saying, it's your turn, go, and it's my joy to watch. John was content to lose his ministry and even his life to be able to watch the greater one exalted to see the bridegroom king get to come and take his bride. He wanted to make the people ready for the king. Now you may have noticed here, I, I skipped over that night, verses 19 and 20 because this, this story is a little about, a bit out of order. It, Luke records in 19 and 20 the imprisonment of John the Baptist, but we know that John... The Baptist is the one who, who uh, baptized Jesus, right? I don't think that this is an accident. I think Luke is making a statement here. He's saying, in the coming of Jesus, John is done. He's come to prepare the way. He came to preach the message of good news until he was imprisoned and eventually beheaded by Herod for rebuking his adultery. 
But his work was done. In just 33 short years, in just six months, he had been faithful to point others to Jesus. And then it was over. And this is the one that Jesus says was the greatest amongst those born of women. This is a similar affirmation to, to hearing something like, well done, good and faithful servant. God approved of John's life. God was approving of John's life for the way that he pointed to Jesus. And this made him a great man in the sight of God. So here's what I want to ask you again. Is this the measure of your greatness today? If John was called greatest among men when he had focused his entire life on bringing Jesus glory, shouldn't the measure of our greatness be in how we bring Jesus glory? This is the second point. I want to talk about the true measure of greatness. Your greatness, church, should be measured by two things. One, what God thinks of you. And two, by how you point to his glory, how you glorify him in this life. Let me explain why that should be your measure of greatness. When God created mankind, he created each of us in his image. What that means is each of us were intended to be little pictures of God walking on the earth. We were supposed to be like mirrors reflecting the glory of God so that he could shine brightly. When anyone, when we would look at each other, we would say, wow, God is good. God created us for this incredible purpose. In all the ways that we take dominion, that we multiply on the earth, we were reflecting together God's image. But the reality is, We've all been like Herod. We have been glory thieves. We have been like one who was unwilling to submit to God's word and said, hey, I think that, uh, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask that you uh, let, let me do things this way. We've insisted that God be the God that we demand him to be. We make God into more of a genie than the one whom we're to bow to in submission. Rather than submitting to him, rather than giving him the place of God in our hearts, we've we've made ourselves to be on the throne. That desire I described as a kid, which I think is cute to some, oh, he wants to be this great baseball star. That's great. You can do anything you want, honey. It wasn't pure, guys. I wanted, I wanted people to see me. Even th- today, right now, I struggle all the time with wanting you to look right here. And it is blasphemous. It's stealing the glory that God deserves. In church, all of us gone there. All of us, like Satan, have marveled at our own beauty. We've stared in the mirror, and instead of seeing God, his glory, we've said, wow, you're, you're so great, and I really want to make sure that everybody else thinks that I'm really great. 
If God is meant to be the metaphorical sun, we are meant to be the moon shining his brightness, but we have made ourselves the sun in our hearts. Here's where I see the greatest temptations in the church to do this right now. And I know these things because, largely because of my own filthy heart, guys. So hear that as I, as I say these things. We so desperately want our families to look so put together. We don't want anybody to see that we've been fighting, <laughs> that we've been wrestling, we've been struggling. We do not want people to see the brokenness of our family or of our parenting or our marriages. When we're talking to one another in our accountability groups, so often we try to cover up our, the grossness of our sin and make it look a little prettier than it is. I am so guilty of this in my life. We try to make people think it's not as bad as, as, as it is. As singles, friends, we try so hard to put on this face to make people think, man, we are the most exciting, most beautiful, put together person you can ever imagine. <laughs> and it's just ugly because it's fake. It's fake, guys. I, I know, again, I know it because it's in here. This is especially is exacerbated in the social media world we live in. We're all trying to one-up everybody. Look how great my life is. Look how great my world is. But in doing so, in trying to paint this picture of ourselves as prettier, holier, more exciting, we are actually redefining what makes us worthy of another's attention. We're redefining what God says is worthy and saying, it's this, look at this, this is what's worthy of attention. And we're being dishonest with, with ourselves, we're being dishonest with one another, and in so doing, it actually leads to horrible anxiety, greater self-consciousness, and an inability to serve one another because we're just thinking about us. So it's, it's ironic, in trying to draw attention to me, I hinder you from seeing true glory. I am an image bearer of God, and I'm meant to point you to, to God. So we cripple one another by this lie that we tell, by, the, by this thing that we try to portray to one another. Amen? Every one of us are glory thieves. Every one of us deserves God's unquenchable fire, as John describes, for our failure to reflect the creator like we were intended to reflect his glory. But here's what I need you to hear today, church. There is good news for you. This is the third point. Jesus was baptized so that sinners, even like you and me, could be great. This is why Jesus came. Jesus didn't need to get baptized, guys. Have you ever wondered, like, why did he go down into that water of baptism? He, his father had just said he's, he's perfect. He's pure. He's pleasing to God. You see, in going into the filthy waters of, of baptism, Jesus was showing what he was about to do. 
him being dunked down in that water was representing the fact that he was going to run not away from God's wrath, but straight into it for us. He was going to go to death for me, the glory thief, for us. He would be crucified for our sin. He's showing us what he was coming to do. This is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus took the baptism of death for you. He took the judgment that we deserve. Why? So that by faith in him, you might be God's beloved son in whom he is well pleased. This is the good news, church. We come here today to hear that all of us far, fall short, far, far shorter than we imagine, and yet that God's grace is so much more abundant for you than you could ever think. The gospel is for you today. If you feel convicted by anything that I've just said, the gospel is for you. When you believe in Christ, if you've, been, if you've trusted in him and if you've been baptized in, into Christ, what you are doing is you are identifying no longer with, with your own sin, but with the perfect righteous life of Jesus. You're identifying with the death that he died so that you died there. Your old man is done. And your new man comes alive in Jesus to reign with him forever and ever. This is what we identify with when we say, I am in Christ. We're saying, I'm putting on the clothes I'm clothed with Christ in such a way that now the Father doesn't look at my grossness, my glory thieving, but he looks at one who has fulfilled God's law perfectly. He looks at us as though we are Jesus. Isn't that crazy? And I know we've preached this. We try to preach this every Sunday, but this is what we need to hear. We say repent and run to God because he is mercy, and this cross is good news for us. His resurrection is good news for us. This is the true measure of greatness, to be accepted by the Father. It starts there. We need to be accepted by him. Jesus said in Luke chapter 7 that though John was the greatest born among women, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I need you to hear that again. John the Baptist was called by Jesus, the greatest in the, to those born of women, but he says, even the least of you in the kingdom of heaven, even the least of you, greater than him. What this means, church, is that if you're in Christ, who is greater than John, your greatness exceeds that of John. Because it's not John's righteousness that's the standard, it's not your righteousness that's the standard, but it's Christ. So for in him, we're even greater than John. Even you, a sinner. You are greater, even the least is greater than John. This is crazy. Your place in the kingdom is then not contingent on your works today. It's not contingent on your Bible reading faithfulness, faithfulness as 
much as we want you to do that. It's not dependent on your beauty. It's not dependent on your confidence. It's not dependent on your net worth. It's not dependent on who you lead to Christ, but it's dependent on your union with Jesus. But the question for you today is this. Is God pleased with you? Is he pleased with you because you're following him? Are you following Jesus today? Are you following Jesus today? That will determine whether that spirit baptism is one of salvation and judgment. That will determine whether he takes you and says you're wheat and puts you in the barn. Or if he says you're chaff and you're burned with unquenchable fire. It's your place with Jesus. Are you following him? Are you in him? Are you united to him like we've been talking about? This is what we want for you. This is why we preach this good news. Jesus is no longer in the grave. He is at the right hand of the Father, and he will judge every single one of us for our life here in this flesh. And we want you to be found in Jesus on that day. So come to him. If you don't know him, we just urge you to talk to me or somebody else here about what that looks like to follow Jesus. What is the true measure of greatness? I've already said it. One, it's, it's to measure our, accept, our success or our greatness by what God thinks of us. And he'll think good of you if you're in Christ. And two, by how well then you live to bring glory to God through Christ. What made Jesus' life pleasing to the Father? It was a life lived in reverence and submission to God. What made John the Baptist's life pleasing to God? It was a life lived in submission and reverence pointing to Jesus the Messiah. What will make God pleased with you in Christ? It is a life lived in loving submission and reverence to God by turning attention to the Savior, by turning attention to Him, not to self. And this is the identity that you've been given. As God's beloved child, we bring him glory. We bring Christ glory. Church, your identity as, as God's child will never be fruitless. It will never be fruitless. We say here a lot that being precedes doing, and that is absolutely right. I've been preaching to you. The first thing you need is, is for God's pleasure, to, he, for him to look and say, I delight in you because of Jesus. That is your being. That's your identity in Jesus. But being will precede doing. It will lead to doing. And doing that I'm talking about today is about bringing God glory, about bringing God glory in Jesus, making much of Jesus in every part of your life. So let me ask you, does your life show your coworkers, your friends, your family members that Jesus is the most important thing to you? That there's no one greater, that he deserves the glory. We are commanded in Colossians, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything in the name of Jesus, whatever you do. Here at All People's Church, it is our aim 
to follow Jesus in everyday life, right? Everyday life. And to help others do the same, especially those far from God. That means in the way that you eat this week, on your lunch break, in the way that you work, in the way that you talk, in the way that you play, we are to bring glory to Jesus so that the world can see that Jesus is greater than all. We're, we're not trying to bring focus to ourselves in the way that we, we work, in the way that we dress ourselves up, in the way that we beautify, in any of these things. We're trying to bring glory to Jesus. This is our purpose as Christians, to bring glory to Jesus. This is a word for me. I'm preaching to myself right now. It's about bringing glory to him. So if I asked your neighbor or coworker or boss... What about your life showed that Jesus was the most important thing to you? What would they say? Would they have an answer? Would they have an answer? God, help us. Oh, that our lives would look so uh, different than the world that people would say, who are they? Who is he that he works like that, that he talks like that? Oh, they're Christians. That makes sense. (laughs) Oh, that that would be true, that people would say Christians are a different breed. They live like they live for the glory of Jesus. Better yet, if I followed you around, if you followed me around for a day, would you find that Jesus was the treasure of my life, that Jesus was the most important thing to me? Are we intentional in the way that we seek to know him, to obey him, and to serve like him? I want to ask one more time, what will be the measure of your greatness in this life? Will it be your own good works, your accomplishments, your net worth, your friendships, your marital status, number of your children, or how well behaved they are, will it be the praise of man, or will it be, it, will it be the praise of God that can only come as his child united to his son? Will your greatest longing be to hear those words on the last day, well done, good and faithful servant? Oh, May God do that for every single one in this room. Please. We want every one of you to be there on that day. And we want you to hear, well done, faithful servant. Not get behind me. I don't know you. Church, um, there is no one greater than Jesus. So let us live for him intentionally before the world. And if you are in Christ, God is pleased with you. I've told you this and I have to tell you again. He's pleased with you in Jesus who has lived a perfect life. So let's stop pretending that we are better than we are and be honest and real so that Jesus gets the glory, so that he gets the glory. We have got to be real with each other, church. We've got to be. If you're in Christ, finally he has given the same spirit to you that he gave to Jesus for his ministry. This is our power, that we'd walk in the spirit of God. 
This is our power. So church, let us focus our energy, not making a name for ourselves tomorrow and the next day, but let us focus our energy on making a name for Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world.